Work, workforce, and workplace norms are shaped as much by popularized portrayals as they are by our lived experiences. From sensational headlines, like The Great Resignation, to successful series, like The Office and Silicon Valley, to skits and stories shared on our social media feeds, what we see shapes what we believe. Let's go behind the scenes to discover what's new now and next in the world of work, and we'll challenge the traditions of what it means to live well and to work well. This is Success From Anywhere. Today on Success From Anywhere, we'll meet a tech visionary who holds multiple patents and a passion for changing how networks work. An engineering genius who is literally architecting the future while addressing a $58 billion market opportunity. Please join me in welcoming to the show Khalid Raza, founder and CEO of Graphiant. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Because we talk about work on the show, I like to ask every guest, what was your first paid job and how did that job inform or inspire your career trajectory? So I'm going to date myself. My first job was a telemarketing job at Sears. Remember that people used to order via the phone and get their merchandise during Christmas? That was my first job. Telemarketing was my first job. Wow. And I am guessing that cold calling has served you well in your career as an entrepreneur. Absolutely. It gives you the confidence. It teaches you two things. Actually, uh, you learn how to deal with customers. You know how to deal with people. At times, irate customers. That's so critical if you want to build a business. You have irritated customers. You know how to manage them. It taught me a lot, actually. Yes, it did. What was the catalyst that sparked your interest in technology where you've spent most of your career? So I was looking for a job during 1992 recession. My background was in databases, but somebody connected me to this small company by the name of Cisco Systems in 1993. I still have that t-shirt which says our first billion. And <laughs> internet was just two years in uh, from commercial, uh, when it was commercialized. Internet was commercialized in 91 and I joined Cisco in 1993. So internet was literally in, in its infancy and once you get connected, started using the internet, you, I was just fascinated and thrilled by the growth of this new world that we were a part of. Everybody can communicate with anybody. So Cisco was my first opportunity and I loved every moment working there. And you and I share that background. You spent 17 years there and I was fascinated to discover you were the first Cisco certified architect in the world what was that like? And give our listeners a sense of how many there might be now, approximately. I think Cisco, after a certain point, because there were not very many people certifying, stopped the CCAR. But when I left uh, in 2011, I think in five years, there were seven or eight CCARs. It was a difficult test. It was you had to go through a written exam and then you had to take a case study and solve problem. And then you had to present to a board which included technical board and executive board. So you have to justify on both ends. It, it was difficult and I think not very many people were able to do it. So I don't know how, because Cisco stopped that certification in 2016, 17, because there were not very many people who were getting certified. Some people would look at your timing of entering Cisco and then being there for 17 years as 
You must have had the opportunity to cash out and retire if you wanted to. And you decided to step from enterprise into entrepreneurship. What inspired that move? Actually, I was so fascinated by the healthcare system. So I was working with a health hospital in Pakistan. I'm originally from Pakistan. So I was working on a hospital. That's a cancer hospital, which was run by a legendary cricket player, later became the prime minister. So I was so fascinated by the healthcare system in that country. It's the only cancer hospital. In fact, uh, Pakistani women have the second highest breast cancer, breast cancer rate in the world at this point. And it goes undetected. And I said, what's the problem that look at major companies around the world, the, look at Cisco's uh, services uh, is delivered by partners. Why having this such a big issue? Why can't we uh, include a lot of physicians to become part of this partner program around this cancer hospital? And I started to study the healthcare system of Pakistan. Then I started to study the healthcare system of the United States. And I said, oh, this is the least IT savvy system in the world, not just a third world country like Pakistan, but in the United States. So I got very fascinated by the healthcare system and I kept on studying it. And then I realized that we need to create a very, very well-connected, integrated healthcare system, even in this country. And actually COVID exposed a lot of these problems in our healthcare system. The continuum of care and research connectivity between hospitals and different primary care, ambulatory care, even pharmaceuticals. So I was so fascinated by it. And I said, we need to make internet as secure, private and reliable as the private connectivity of the enterprise connect, uh, connections are and how do we get there? And so that was my path. And I started to look into more on the enterprise connectivity. It was become very expensive because of the data growth. So I said, there came a time that I said, I need to take this jump, leap of faith and actually see how we transform this fixed rigid network into a much more flexible uh, network. What I like about what you're saying is you're outlining a thought process or a methodology or an approach to become an entrepreneur. First, find a problem that you have an insatiable curiosity about, then get more interested and discover if anybody else believes this is a problem or a possibility, and then think about how to solve for this from an ecosystem approach. And I love what you said there at the end, which is thinking about things that we believe to be fixed as flexible. Say more about that, because I think that's core to you as an inventor and an entrepreneur and a leader, challenging this belief that we can be flexible within a framework. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the original idea of internet, I'm now going back to the 93. That was a global addressing and everybody believed that every device can talk to every device. Fast forward to 2000s, the likes of the Google, Facebook, Netflix, we converted into internet into a pure, there are few server locations and there are millions of clients who can connect to those servers. So it became client server. Look what is happening now. Your, neither your workloads are fixed nor your users are fixed. Cloud changed that dynamics. We've moved away from an enterprise data center to centers of data. And those centers of data are not fixed. Now, if you want to connect anything to anything, your user to your workload, which is in a very unpredictable environment, how do you evolve those technologies 
which if I look at the 30 years of innovations we've done in networking, we build network assuming that network connectivity is fixed. And that assumption is now falling apart that the network connectivity is not fixed. And let's look at three, four years down the road. Look at edge computing. More data will be generated at the edge of the network than in the cloud and the data centers. So the network is getting so fast disaggregated where the data would be exchanged between entities and this data exchange would be machine to machine, not user to machine. So we can't delay uh, transfer of data. We, don't, we cannot assume that the data generating point will remain fixed. It has to be so flexible and changing all the time. So we need to evolve our networking mindset that this is not a fixed network, it's a flexible, changeable, changing network. And that's something needs to evolve from technology point of view. And you're looking in the direction that we are all content creators now. So there are even more places where people are creating data, thinking about how to store data, move data from place to place. And I wanna to connect to something you said earlier, specifically in reference to the healthcare system. And yet the pandemic, when people started working from home, highlighted this as a gap, which is how do we secure networks and data and information when anyone connect, can connect to anything anywhere at any time? And this is a topic you spend a lot of time thinking about. Yes, I mean, medical is so fascinating to me. What is happening in the medical industry and it's continue gonna evolve. I mean, COVID highlighted a few things I've always was thinking about. Look, what's, ha what's gonna to happen to elderly care? Geriatrics, in my opinion, in the next five years, is gonna go home. You, the people stay healthier when they are elderly, especially when they're in their existing home environment there were a lot of medical IoT devices that will be connected because all of a sudden you had a hundred bed hospital or you had a uh, elderly home, which would be hundred people location can get converted into thousands of locations because a healthcare unit just moved to somebody's home. Now the data that is generated at somebody's house is a more compliance data than me watching Netflix. So the data that is being generated at the edge is more regulatory compliance and private data, and it requires guaranteed delivery. Have we thought about that? The internet is not a reliable medium. We did not think about the internet is gonna get converted into this connectivity where we can't afford loss of data traffic because there were transit issues on the internet. We need to fix this problem, and this is what drives me today that the data that is being created on a factory floor, you can lose thousands of dollars an hour if there is a failure on a factory floor, which requires that data that needs to be transported. Healthcare, these are the two most fascinating industries which requires the edge compute, edge locations to be more reliable, much more private, and we can't afford these transit failures that continue to happen on the internet. So that's why this whole idea of network as a service is so critical for the edge compute to grow. And that to me is something that I'm very passionate and extremely fascinated about. And regardless of what industry you're in, whether it's technology or manufacturing or healthcare, we can all relate to feeling a sense of urgency of what happens if the data that affects the quality of our life or potentially the end of our life does not get to where it needs to go when it needs to get there. And some listeners might be shocked to discover that the internet is not a stable place. And in addition to losing thousands of dollars, you could lose thousands of lives. 
How do we think about that differently? I mean, what are the new guiding principles we all need to consider when we think about getting our data securely where and when it needs to go somewhere? So, I mean, we have a lot of lessons learned. L look what happened to the content creation guys. They realized that the content needs to get closer and closer to the user. The, the distribution of this content in so many locations, most of these guys, Facebook, Google, they did that. What we need to do is to say, we need to start building wherever the data is getting created, get it as close to the data and bring it on the network as early as possible. And this is what I've been talking to service providers, that you have a tremendous opportunity to start monetizing and start actually servicing this data for an enterprise, which was done very well by over the top guys, the likes of the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazon. I firmly believe the opportunity is now pivoting towards service providers, who by the way, are the closest to where the data is generated. Uh, Telco central office is closest to my home. Google is not, Facebook is not, but a telco central office is. They, they will provide that reliability. And I think that their central offices will become data exchange points where two entities can exchange data directly. Uh, a healthcare provider can come and get that data from a central office of a service provider and then take it back to their location. Because one of the things IDC highlighted it, which is very fascinating, that the growth of data it, uh, is outpacing the growth of bandwidth. For every one byte of bandwidth, we have one million bytes of data. So we cannot continue to backhaul data to these big data centers, cloud data center locations. So I believe that service providers really have an opportunity to transform this data economy for two reasons. They're at the lowest latency point. They can preserve a lot more data uploading bandwidth saving that the enterprises are looking for. And again, I'll go back, the healthcare and manufacturing are going to generate a lot of data. So I think that the earliest we can date, do the data exchanges directly between machines and privately and securely. If you look at a central office of a service provider, it is not internet connected. So how do we make this new next generation network ready for this data economy and critical data economy? It's not me watching Netflix or not me on a Facebook. It is my health data which needs to be transported urgently without latency and without performance and losses. Did you know that 68% of workers say a hybrid workplace is their preference? Make hybrid work for everyone with Robin. Robin is the industry-leading flexible workplace platform for connecting people with rooms, desks, and each other. We've helped companies like Peloton, Toyota, and Hulu build better workplace experiences. Plus, we integrate with the tools you already know and love. To learn more about how we make flexible work a reality, visit www.robinpowered.com. My first job in the technology industry was at AT&T, a very large service provider, and I have toured many of these centers that you are talking about. And what I like about what you're saying and going back to, you know, what is fixed is flexible is Service providers are an afterthought for a lot of people on a day-to-day -day basis, unless you pick up your mobile phone to call someone and it doesn't work, and then you are conscious that you have a service provider and it's that you're unhappy with them, that it, your service isn't working. And when you think about the opportunity for refreshing and re-energizing a really vital part of our network infrastructure, what I'm hearing you say is, perhaps this is our greatest innovation opportunity is in some of our long-standing service providers that 
we're not conscious of on a day-to-day basis and don't think about inviting into our design sessions or prioritizing our interactions. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And look what happened to the service provider in the last 10, 10 or 15 years with cloud. Everybody just wants to treat them as dumb pipes. Well, in my opinion, they are the closest to the data sources now. They should become part of this ecosystem. And I think that the, the edge computing is flipping the data generation and data consumption point. And whosoever is the closest to the da- data will be the biggest beneficiary. But again, the technologies we've been using for the past 30 years were built for very fixed infrastructure. This is highly dynamic infrastructure that a, a medical entity will exchange data at a central office of a service provider and they will be done. Then that compute could be utilized by somebody else on the same location. So it's a very ephemeral connections that are going to create this whole data exchange economy of the future. And I still believe that the service providers have the capacity, have the in uh, services that they should rethink what they've been building their networks about. Provisioning oriented, very static, rigid network to highly flexible, scalable infrastructure that can change in few seconds, service providers need to do to networking what cloud guys did to compute. And this is their opportunity. It should be consumption-based, flexible environment, not provisioning-based. And when I think about what you're describing in simple, practical, accessible terms that my soon-to-be 100-year-old grandfather can understand, I think about it this way. Imagine going to a restaurant where every customer could also be cooking the food and serving the food at the same time that Uber Eats and DoorDash are coming. I mean, the entire consumption model and who's playing what role is constantly changing. Yeah. What does your go-to-market model look like? And when I think about the implications for lots of our listeners, what they're wondering is, how do I get ready for this? I mean, how is my job on a day-to-day basis going to change because of what you're saying. The, the, the whole ecosystem is changing so fast that the internet of consumer is gonna connect, change to internet of machines. I mean, it's a machine to machine communication, that's the future. How do I become part of this data sharing economy? I hold, I, probably I hold rights to some data. How I do wanna exchange that data? It's, to me, it's very, very fascinating. The future, in my opinion, in the next five years, how we've paid for internet is going to change. And that's why my opinion is today, who pays for the internet? The internet is subsidized by the likes of uh, content providers, by the likes of advertising is subsidizing the internet. And in my opinion, the data that I own, I should have right on that data. And from my perspective, if we are flipping the internet, if you're flipping this whole business model, I think there's tremendous opportunity from consumer point of view. The future of enterprise is significantly different than what it is today. The enterprises of tomorrow will be more data oriented. Their line of businesses want to offer service to their customer, not to not products. Uh, the internet of things will be driven by the likes of the Honeywells, the Metronics, the Thermal Fishers who provide these services to the customer. So, I am very fascinated by the future of internet, which is machine and service oriented rather than the consumer oriented. So whosoever understands how this monetization of the internet will happen, which will be machine and data exchange model, 
will be the biggest winner. And I think as consumers, the more data we generate, we might want to be a part and share of that data that is being my data that is being monetized. Today, I have no control over it. How would I fix that part of it? Because I don't have strong consumer background. I don't know. But I do have a strong enterprise background. I think the future of Internet belongs more to the enterprise, which creates the Internet of Things than just the consumer based Internet. And that's an opportunity which line of business and I'm sure in big companies are exploring. Yes. And you and I get excited about the possibility and being able to create the future. And some people listening, when they hear phrases like machine to machine or AI or chatbots, start to get nervous about a world where machines are running our lives. And particularly in the healthcare world that you were talking about, I think what worries us is context, how context rich can these networks and machine to machine models become? Is there a way to still have human centered design and context in a world that's largely becoming ruled by machines and machine to machine communication and data? I, I think the the data that is being generated needs to be processed much faster by machines. Because I can look at billions of uh, in, in billions of data information and come to a much faster conclusion. And how do you interpret? How do you translate? How do you effectively cure people? Would be human interaction. So, hu the, the human interface of the EQ piece machines can never provide. But the data piece that I can look at a particular disease, look at all the customer information, uh, patient information, and then come back and says this is the information which was noticed by somebody remotely in Australia three years ago, and these were the results. Those results and analysis would be much faster by machine. But how do I interpret it and translate into the human effect of people? That would be still done by humans. So I, I, to be honest, I haven't figured out how the healthcare will transform. But in my opinion, the future of healthcare, a lot of doctors will be more data scientists than what they do primary care today. That's my assessment. I might be totally wrong, but the way I look at it, they will be handling a lot more data and data coming to them rather than the traditional rote memory uh, understanding of how diseases work. So I, I think we're living in one of the most fascinating times that uh, ever been. Doctors will become data scientists. I, I love that because I was someone who struggled with major medical misdiagnosis where I went three and a half years with mysterious symptoms and no one could figure out what was wrong. And I have often wondered what would happen if technology were even where it was right now to get to a correct diagnosis more quickly. And I firmly believe and agree with what you're saying, which is essentially the future belongs to those who create it. Yes, yes. And you hold multiple patents, so you are creating and patenting the future. How do you go about inventing something that's patent worthy and how do you get a patent? Because of our listeners will want to know what that's like. I, I think from patents perspective, my most interesting patent was around the field of software defined WAN, which by the way, in 2009, 2010, nobody believed in it. And it's an $8 billion market now. It's very critical. I tell people when you have an idea, A, the number one thing you need to have the courage to say, if I believe in my idea, I'm going to go and execute it. It's okay to, to fail. It's totally okay to fail. 
But that courage to go and fail is very critical. And from patents perspective, if you are working somewhere and you get an idea to patent, to make a patent individually, you have to jump ship because otherwise all your IP belongs to the enterprise or the company you're working for. So take a leap of faith, believe in yourself. And then once you're out there on your own, then file patents. Your ideas belong to you and treat them as such if you believe in yourself. Otherwise, patent is always owned by the company you work for. Yes, and you mentioned your multi-billion dollar producing patented idea. And let's talk a little bit more about Graphium because at the top of the show, I talked about the $58 billion market opportunity that you're addressing. Say more about Graphium, what you do, the challenge you're trying to solve and what you see as the opportunity. I love a quote from Bill Gates. And I think we're reaching that point. He says, an automation done to an efficient system increases efficiency. An automation done to an inefficient system increases inefficiency. I think in the internet environment, we're reaching a point that we're trying to automate legacy technologies that are in some case 30, 40 years old. We need to evolve making this whole network much more flexible, reliable, and programmable. What Graphian is trying to do is in my opinion, and I'm making a very bold statement, internet is not ready for internet of machines or internet of things. We like to talk about it, but in its current form, backhauling data to location and then uh, consuming that data, that's not survivable. As I earlier said, the data is outpacing bandwidth one to one million. So we need to solve a problem where anybody can exchange data. The internet becomes as programmable as cloud, and every time I need to make change, I do not have to go to every router along the way and provision and make those changes. Graphient is saying, let's cloudify the internet. Let's make it as simple as consumable for an enterprise class internet, which is the which we call which I'm calling a business internet. You can connect to our Graphient, what we call stateless network. You can program our network the way you want to for your customers and your business partners and connect. So for the next wave of internet, we need to look at it. The exchange of data is, has to be more reliable, more programmable, and it should be very, very dynamic, which it's not today because it's heavily provisioning based. It has to be programmable. New protocol needs to evolve than what we've been building for the past 30, 35 years. And that's what I'm very passionate. And this is what I want to drive that how we transform this exactly the way we change compute for cloud is exactly we need to change internet for programmability. And you have quite a board that is behind you on this concept and you're out evangelizing what it is that's possible. A number of our listeners are either creating boards because they're entrepreneurs or they're already somewhat beholden to them. You must have some strategies for effective board engagement and being strategic, even if it's your personal board of directors, the people who advise you. How do you think through who you surround yourself with when you're a creator, an inventor, and a visionary. So let me break it into two type of board members you look for. The number one who is always your investors on the board. So the people who invest in you is so important. They are also visionary and they align with your vision. So my board has people who truly are one of the greatest invest, uh, investors, Bill Corrin, who was the VP of engineering at Google, 
He's one of the smartest. He's an engineer's engineer. Whenever you talk to Bill, it's always a learning experience. So having somebody like him is phenomenal from a board perspective. My other board member, who was actually the first guy who funded an SD-WAN company, as I said, in the $8 billion market, is Mike Gogan. Mike was not investing in technology companies. He started his own fund. He left Sequoia Capital, started his own fund, Two Beer Capital. I actually chased Mike down and said, Mike, I want you to invest in my company because when I when he was at Sequoia, nobody was funding our previous company, Viptela. Mike was the first guy. Mike and Bill, like, in fact, were the two guys who understood this market. So they gave me a lot of insight from that perspective. Investors have to believe and investors have to understand the industry. And those two gentlemen definitely understand industry. Uh, my third investor uh, board member is Brian. Brian comes from semiconductor side. So he brings that European mindset and understanding how to go global. Then who you bring as your independent board members. I got very lucky that I was able to get Dave Riley. Dave Riley was the CIO of Bank of America. Dave has been phenomenal on giving me insight as the user of technology. When you build these big networks, when you protect one of the largest banks in the world, your view of the world is very, very different. Then the other one is Mike Elmore. Mike Elmore was my first guy who actually, him and I sat in a cafe and talked about Viptela, which was my first company in 2012, 13, that how SD-WAN is needed. So if you look at it, my investment board has the technology and the business understanding. Independent board members both have strong business and user understanding. So it's very critical that you surround yourself with people who have experience and who teach you and who challenge you. And these are the people who actually challenge because they give you a point of view that you at times have not looked at and not thought about. So every board member who challenges you is one of the biggest asset because it's going to go back and make you think. Challengers are your biggest assets. That's a great takeaway for all of us. And I'm curious with everything you've done and everything you will go on to do, what do you want your legacy from this work to be? I want to leave my mark on the internet. That's the biggest legacy that people will remember. You had something to do with the next generation internet, which is the internet of machines, which is the internet of data. That's the legacy I want to change, leave with. Well, we like to do a session on the show called the virtual water cooler because people say they miss going to the office and having spontaneous conversations. This is a part of the show where I ask you five quick questions and you say what comes to mind. It just helps us get to know you better. And then we can just pretend we bumped into each other at the Graphene water cooler. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> what time of day do you do your best creative work? Early mornings. Speaking of time, now imagine every day has 25 hours instead of 24. How will you spend your extra hour? With my family. If you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Avocado and toast. <laughs> you're, you're embodying Silicon Valley with your answer. The zombie apocalypse is coming. Who are the three people you want on your team? Ali Sheikh. Uh... Venu Himidi and Woody Sessoms. Oh, and I know Woody. Great choice. 
How can listeners learn more about you, stay connected with your thought leadership and also with what's happening at Graphient? Connect with me on LinkedIn because you'll find out regularly what we're doing at Graphient or go to graphient.com. Thanks to Khalid Raza, founder and CEO of Graphient and serial entrepreneur for joining us today on Success From Anywhere because success is not a destination. Success is not a location. Success is available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Thanks for listening.